0: Father in heaven, bless us now as we move into day 81 of DA with DA, chapter 73. And uh, Lord, we're excited. And we pray that as we learn about the Holy Spirit, as we learn about the comforter, the promise that Jesus gave, that we ourselves would receive and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, a quick drink and we're, we're off to the races. Okay, so what I think I will do probably is just read John 13, 31 to 38, just to sort of set the tone here. Um, So remember, Jesus has been in the upper room with his disciples. They have had the Last Supper. They have gone through the Ordinance of Humility, otherwise known as the foot-washing service. Judas has been identified as the betrayer. Uh, He has gone out, remember, into the night and... um, Now we're in verse 31 of John 13. John 13, beginning in verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, speaking of Judas, when he, he being Judas, had gone out. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So I say to you, so I now say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, will all know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I would lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Okay, and then we're into all of 14 and maybe just an overview. John chapter 14, um, I'll just read you the subheadings in my New King James Version here. The way, the truth, and the life, the Father revealed, the answered prayer, Jesus promises another helper, The indwelling of the Father and the Son, Um, the gift of his peace, right? My peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Then John 15, the true vine. Oh, I got chills on that section. We'll come back to that. Love and joy perfected, the world's hatred, the coming rejection. John 16, the work of the Holy Spirit, your sorrow will turn to joy. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. John 17, Jesus prays for himself, Jesus prays for his disciples, Jesus prays for all believers. Okay, that's a lot, right? I just read the the, the subheadings there, and that's a lot of material to cover. And again, I just want to give a a big shout-out of appreciation um, to Ellen White. Of course, she's not cognizant of it, but I'm just so thankful for her ministry, for her clarity, and... uh, for her willingness to write this book, but not just willingness, but to write it so well. I mean, there's a reason that some hundred and what, 30 years later, we're still reading this book and not just reading it, but loving it. I mean, this book's incredible. It's, it's a classic on the life of Christ. Just to give you an example, and I've mentioned this before, uh, Dallas Jenkins, the creator of the very popular, well-known, I say excellent uh, series on the life of Jesus, The Chosen, read Uh, one of the many books that he read, I'm sure, in preparation for his chosen series was The Desire of Ages. And I have video evidence of that. He put it on his Instagram account. And when he pointed the camera at The Desire of Ages, he said these two words, unique vision. And so why you think yourself, I mean, there are literally, I don't know, thousands, many thousands of books that have been written just in the English language on the life of Christ. So why should this one be so extraordinary? Like, why would this be one of the books that just for example, Jenkins would be pointing at and saying unique vision when there are many thousands of books that have been written on the life of Jesus, on the theology and on the history and on the teachings and all. Why this book? Because it's a great book. Because it's amazing. Because it's outstanding. Just put the Seventh-day Adventist thing on a side. just just, Just clear all of that, you know, if you regard it as debris. Just clear it all away. Just come to the book and say, what about Jesus? And I've had so many people so many people reach out to me and say, this book has changed my life. Like this has been an encounter with the living Christ. And I was having that experience today. I got to the hospital about an hour before the meeting was to take place. And I read over the chapter again. I had the book with me. So I sat there and the birds were singing and beautiful spring day here in Colorado. I had the windows rolled down and I just read through it. And I was just communing with the father and with Jesus by his spirit. I was just like, God is here right now. And I know that the world is in complete upheaval right now. I mean, the world's been in upheaval for centuries, but it's just like the whole world is falling apart. And I just felt the peace of Jesus. My peace, I leave with you. My peace, I give unto you. And as I was reading there, I was just like, God is alive. God is good. Jesus is on the throne of the universe. He has sent his spirit. And the world just seemed like an amazing place. It just felt like it was a place where Jesus had come and had conquered and had ascended victorious. So this book is incredible. All right. Are you ready? Because we're going in. We're going in deep here. Um, okay. So we're going to start. Uh, probably let me just read the first few paragraphs, just race through them to sort of set the tone. Because there's not a lot of narrative in this chapter. There's a lot of theology in here, a lot of encouragement in here. Um, just a lot of great writing. Again, checkmark after checkmark after checkmark, but she does have some narrative sections and I wanna read that so we can continue to get the tone set in our mind. Um, So I'm in paragraph one, chapter 73, here we go. Looking upon his disciples with divine love and with the tenderest sympathy, Christ said, now the son of man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Judas had left the upper chamber and Christ was alone with the 11. It feels weird just to say that, doesn't it? because we've always thought about the 12, and now Christ is alone with the 11. He was about to speak of his approaching separation from them, but before doing this, he pointed to the great object of his mission. It was this that he kept ever before him. It was his joy that all his humiliation and suffering would glorify his Father's name. To this he first directs the thoughts of his disciples. Second paragraph, then addressing them by the endearing term little children. Oh, isn't that beautiful? endearing, beautiful, touching, tender. Little children, he said, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So I now say to you. Third paragraph, the disciples could not rejoice when they heard this. I mean, how could they? Fear fell upon them. They pressed close about the Savior. I like that, right? Like just reflexively, when Jesus says, I'm leaving, they're like, no, they push close to him. They just want to be In his presence. They want to be extracting every second of his presence, every moment, every influence, every word, every syllable, every smell. They just press into his presence. They're just around him. They're touching him. They don't want him to be gone. Their master and lord, the beloved teacher and friend, he was dearer to them than life. Wow, I want to be there. I want to be to the place where Jesus is dearer to me than life itself. To him, they had looked for help in all their difficulties, for comfort in their sorrows and disappointments. Now he was to leave them a lonely, dependent company. Dark were the forebodings that filled their hearts. Maybe just another paragraph or two here. But the Savior's words to them were full of hope. He knew that they were to be assailed by the enemy and that Satan's craft is most successful against those who are depressed by difficulties. Therefore, he pointed them away from the things which are seen. And I love the fact she quotes 2 Corinthians 4.18. By the way, Paul and his writings make, you know, many very important appearances in this chapter. And I've been quoting 2 Corinthians 4.18 several times in DA with DA. And I even quoted it today in the sermons that I recorded. And so I so appreciate seeing it here. It says, for he pointed them away from the things that are seen to the things which are not seen. 2 Corinthians 4.18. For uh, from earthly exile, he turned their thoughts to the heavenly home. And she's got so many of those great one-liners in this chapter. From earthly exile, he turned their thoughts to the heavenly home. Such a great play on words, such a great turn of phrase. Um, And then this is where he then says, John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. So, So let's just try and put those words in their context here. When Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, he's he can see the the distress, the discouragement, the, the, the fear on their faces. And he says to them, you know, young, young children, little children, don't let your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Yes, yes, we do, Jesus. Then believe in me. Believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. And he goes through that beautiful section there in John chapter 14, verses one to three. Um, So then I'm gonna start picking my way through here. Uh, So stay with me because we're gonna be moving somewhat quickly. Just a few lines. I love this where as Jesus is beginning to speak, she says that Christ's departure, I'm quoting here, same paragraph down toward the bottom, Christ's departure was the opposite of what the disciples feared. It did not mean a final separation. He was going to prepare a place for them that he might come again and receive them to himself. Here we go, here's another great one-liner. While he was building mansions for them, bam, they were to build characters after the divine likeness. Okay, another great turn of phrase. She just said a moment ago, from earthly exile to the heavenly home, Jesus goes to build mansions for them and leaves them, now he hasn't yet told them about this, but he's going to in just a bit, under the spirit's influence and power to build characters after the divine likeness. I mean, great stuff, right? Great stuff, so good. Then the next section is a play off of Jesus' wonderful phrase in response to the question, Lord, where are you going, right? Thomas, where are you going? And we don't know where you're going. And then Jesus says famously, wonderfully, inimitably, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, who can say this? You know, I'm reminded of the the words of C.S. Lewis where he speaks about where Lewis speaks about how we can't just put Jesus nicely and neatly and innocuously into a little category of fine moral teacher, right? Or he says, no, that option is not available to us because he said things like, I and my father are one. You know, before Abraham was, I am. And things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not, I know the way, I know some truth, I'm living a good life. That's not what he said. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Lewis said, come on, this guy was either a total deceiver or he was who he claimed to be. We cannot place him nicely and neatly and harmlessly in some little box where he's just a religious teacher. This guy is speaking with divine authority. He's talking as if he's God. See, this guy's acting like he's God. Guess what? Because he is. He's the incarnate God. And so I absolutely love that section. Jump down then to the paragraph that begins, there are not many ways to heaven. This is so good, and I'm gonna be reading a lot of this. There are not many ways to heaven. Each one may not choose his own way. Christ says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. Since the first gospel sermon was preached when in Eden, and I just gotta say, here again, Ellen White shows her radical gospel focus, her radical Christocentricity and her understanding of systematic narrative theology. She's not a dispensationalist. She knows that the same gospel that was preached in Eden is the same gospel that Jesus is preaching now, and it's the same gospel that Paul's going to preach all over the larger Mediterranean world. She is steeped in the great truth of the continuity of Scripture, right? Not the discontinuity, but the continuity. And so she says, since the first gospel sermon was preached, when in where? Eden it was declared that the seed of the woman should bruise the serpent 's head. this is Genesis 3:15. Christ had been uplifted as the way, the truth, and the life. He was, and I love what she does here, very, very careful, uh, very clever. He was the way. There's this nice little refrain here. Um, I just missed my page there. He was the way when Adam lived, when Abel presented to God the blood of the slain lamb, representing the blood of the Redeemer. Christ was the way by which the patriarchs and prophets were saved. He is the way by which we alone can have access to God. The way, the way, the way. And she just moves through the whole sweep of biblical history there, from Eden through the patriarchs and prophets, and then then right down to us. He alone, he is the way by which by which alone we can have access to God. Ellen White is steeped in the great truth, the great Protestant truth, the great biblical truth of righteousness by faith, and it comes up over and over and over again in this chapter, and I'll point several of them out. Um, okay, so then she says in the next paragraph, I'm, I'm moving kind of along here somewhat quickly, when Philip says, Lord, just show us the Father, and we'll be happy. That will finally settle us, and Jesus is like, have I been so long with you? that you haven't seen the Father? Of course, seeing the Father is not seeing him in all of his eternal, divine, incandescent, unapproachable glory. Seeing the Father is seeing the character of the Father. And I remind you yet again that what we saw in Jesus was not really an illumination about the nature of God in terms of his omnipotence and his omnipresence and his you know, incandescent glory. What we saw was the character of God because if you saw Jesus, he was like a six foot tall, 185 pound Jewish man, right? Like if you looked at him, you wouldn't say, oh, that's what God looks like. You'd say, no, that's what my neighbor looks like, right? That's what, the, that's what the guy across the street looks like. But that was God. So what we get here is an insight, not so much into God's nature, which is now and ever will be at some level a profound mystery to all created beings, including angels, including angels. But what we get here is a window, an insight into the, the character of God. The character of God, and I'm not introducing a dualism here between God's nature and God's character. Of course, they are made of whole cloth. I'm simply saying that what we see in Christ is God's character on display, God's personality on display, his goodness on display. And so it says there that Christ alone could represent the Father to humanity, and this representation the disciples had been privileged to behold for over three years. So this is why she says that Jesus asked with pain surprised, have I been so long with you? You know, Philip, has it been that long? Okay, uh, continuing on here, um, God in human flesh. uh, Okay, I really like the allusion to Colossians 3. Jump down to the paragraph that says, if the disciples believed this vital connection between the Father and the Son, if they believed that, let me just read this paragraph, it's really good. If the disciples believed this vital connection between the Father and the Son, their faith would not forsake them when they saw Christ suffering and death to save a perishing world. Christ was seeking to lead them from their low condition of faith to the experience they might receive if, here's another if, they truly realized what he was, God in human flesh. He desired them to see that their faith must lead up to God and be anchored there. I preached about this today. The anchor that's spoken of in Hebrews chapter six, the anchor that the author of Hebrews says enters into the veil. We have this hope. Right, this, this anchor for the soul that is sure and steadfast. The very um, presence of a, of a human being, Jesus, incarnate Jesus, in the presence of God as a human being and as God. And uh, it's incredible in Hebrews chapter 6, and she alludes to it here. Anchored there, how earnestly and perseveringly our compassionate Savior sought to prepare his disciples for the storm of temptation that was soon to beat upon them he would have them hid with him in God. That's Colossians 3. That's Colossians 3. Colossians 3 is, of course, building on Moses being hid in the rock. And we've talked about this already in DA with DA. It says, for you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right? For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He goes on to say, so when Christ who is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. I love the idea that just as Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock, we are to hide in the cleft of the rock, who is Christ. And you might remember when I said it this way, the teaching of Colossians 3 and the teaching of Moses being hid in the rock, and even by contrast, the teaching of uh, the experience of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is that God is not someone to hide from, he's someone to hide in. He's someone to hide in. And that's what it says there. He, Jesus, would have them, his disciples, hide with him, where? In God. Bam. God is not someone to hide from. He's someone to hide in. He's not someone to run from. He's someone to run to. Come on now. Uh, The next paragraph that begins, as Christ was speaking these words, she uses the word drawn, 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 drawn. They would be drawn to God. They would be drawn to one another. They would be drawn to God in Christ. Very important word that she uses over and again. The next paragraph, most assuredly I say to you, this section was fantastic. Most assuredly I say to you, Christ continued, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. The Savior was deeply anxious for his disciples to understand for what purpose his divinity was united with to humanity. Watch this. He came to the world to display the glory of God that man might be uplifted by its restoring power. God was manifested in him that he might be manifested in them. Another great turn of phrase, right? I like that. Really like that. God was manifested in Jesus that he might be manifested in the followers. So Jesus becomes the link, right? Fully God, fully man. And he becomes the link that connects divinity to humanity and humanity to divinity, And she's saying here, this was the point of him coming, to bring restoration, reconnection. What's the biblical word that's often used here, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5? Reconciliation. To reconnect, to reattach, to restore. Okay, then she goes on to say, when Jesus said you'll do greater works, it didn't mean more exalted works, but to a greater extent, right? And we'll talk about why that is, because if Jesus was limited by his humanity right walking the dusty streets of ancient palestine the dusty you know travel worn roads of ancient palestine if he was here he wasn't here and if he was here he wasn't here and if he was here he wasn't here but but jesus is going to leave he's going to empower not just 11 he's going to empower thousands and millions and the works that they will do will be greater in extent right not greater in terms of their character um but greater in terms of of extent. Incredible. Um, Okay. Uh, Okay, I'm turning the page now. There's still some really great stuff there, but we've got to keep motoring along. I'm in the paragraph that begins, as yet the disciples were unacquainted with the saviors. I'm basically just going through it um, pretty much straight through. Jump down to the bottom of that paragraph. This is great stuff. Every sincere prayer is heard in heaven. Uh, That needs to be underlined. It's underlined in mine. It should definitely be underlined in yours. Every sincere prayer is heard in heaven. It may not be fluently expressed, but if the heart is in it, it will ascend to the sanctuary where Jesus ministers and he will present it to the Father without one awkward stammering word, beautiful and fragrant with the incense of his own, say it with me, perfection. Perfection. Okay, here is one of the the first, not maybe the first, but this is one of the clearest um, articulations of the great truth of righteousness by faith. And she's gonna be into another one in just two paragraphs. So she's saying, when we pray, this has got Romans 8 all over it, by the way. When we pray, we don't know how to pray. So the Holy Spirit comes and intercedes for us with, as Paul says in Romans 8, with groanings that cannot be uttered. And just a reminder uh, I spoke with Nathan Renner about this yesterday. In about, in about a month's time, I'm going to be doing a multi-part series on Romans chapter 8. Not just on Romans. On Romans chapter 8, we're going to try and stream that. Nathan told me yesterday that they're having some problems with their Wi-Fi. But even if we can't stream it, it will all be captured and recorded, and it will be uploaded to my YouTube channel, okay? So we're going to do at least a six-part series. It might even be eight. I told Nathan, hey, that'd be great if we did eight parts on Romans 8. And and one of my favorite sections in Romans 8 is where Paul says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and prays for us with groanings that cannot be uttered because he says, we don't even know how to pray as we ought." That's what she's talking about here. She's saying our words might stumble and stammer and we might, you know, I don't know if you ever feel like this. Sometimes I, somebody's saying, Micronesia 09 is saying my favorite chapter. Agree, it's my favorite chapter in the entire New Testament. And for me, It's by far my favorite chapter. It's my favorite chapter and my favorite book. And don't get me wrong. There are many, many other chapters that I absolutely love and value, but Romans 8 for me is the top of the top of the top of the top. So that's, and it's Nathan's favorite chapter too, which is why we're gonna combine to do a series through Romans chapter eight. I cannot wait. In fact, we're calling it Great. G-R-8. Great. A life-changing look at Romans chapter eight. I hope you like it. I came up with it. <laughs> I think Nathan said he liked the word life-changing. I said originally an in-depth look. He said, "Ah, oh, no, that's boring. Um, do, uh, do life-changing. So great. G-R and then the number eight, a life-changing look at Romans chapter eight. And I'll, I'll keep you informed stay up to date on Instagram. It'll be on Instagram, it'll be on Facebook, it'll be on Twitter, I'll be letting you know all about it. But anyway, this has got that Romans 8 thing all over it, right? We stumble, we stammer, we choke out prayers. I mean, I don't know if you feel like I sometimes do. I I kneel down to pray and I'm like, I don't even know how to pray. And then I just, this will sound maybe a little weird and I don't want you to think I'm a weirdo, but I just, I just feel before the lord i just i just say god here i am you know all of this and i'm not suggesting that i don't speak i i do speak in my prayers but there are times like when we pray about the condition of the world or the salvation of a family member or the sickness or passing of a loved one sometimes i'm just like i, I don't know what to say so i just i just feel before the Lord, and I say, God, you see my heart, you read it. You are infinite and eternal and illimitable. You don't need me to be able to articulate this in just the right way. God's not there saying, like, "Mm, I could have answered that prayer if he would have said that a little more clearly. If he would have been a little more No. Just we just groan before the Most High. And he says, Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Check. Check, check. And Jesus is there saying, yeah, I know that groan. I experienced that very groan. And then the Father says, yeah, Okay, I remember you experienced that." And they're, phew, phew, phew. so the father presents the prayers of the saints, or excuse me, Jesus presents the prayers of the saints to the father. Listen to this again. Beautiful and fragrant with the incense of his own perfection. Oh, come on, friends. Not with the incense of my perfection, with the incense of Christ's perfection. Preach. Um, The next paragraph she says in that first sentence, the latter part of that first sentence, in every difficulty we are to see a call to prayer. Okay, now the paragraph that begins In my name, in my name, just in case you're all lost here, page 790 of Types and Symbols, 668 in the original. Listen to this Um, In my name, Christ bids the disciples pray. In Christ's name, his followers are to stand before God. Through the value of the sacrifice made for them, they are of value. That's righteousness by faith. According to that, how do we have value? She says it, through the value of the sacrifice that was made for us and on our behalf. Well, what's the value of that sacrifice? It's the life of God. That's an infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. (laughs) I mean, right? Read it again. Through the value of the sacrifice made for them, check, They are of value in the Lord's sight. Oh, and in case that's not clear, this next section should all be underlined. Underline, 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 underline. And I just put a gigantic RBF right here. That's my my signal for righteousness by faith. A giant RBF. Listen to this. Because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, the root word of imputed is put, to put, because of the imputed, the put, righteousness of Christ, put to our account, they are accounted precious, right? I, I could go so deep on this, but this has got, this has got Romans 15, Romans, Genesis 15, 6 all over it. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It was put to him for righteousness. And I'm going to resist the temptation to dive deep on that. But let's just say this, because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, they are accounted precious. For Christ's sake, the Lord pardons those that fear him. He does not see in them the vileness of the sinner. He recognizes in them, get ready, the likeness of his son in whom they believe. Bam. He doesn't see the vileness of sinners. He doesn't see all of the ugliness and heinousness of our character and when we're in Christ, when we believed in Christ, when we have prayed to Christ, that is all viewed through the lens and through the incense of the perfection of his character. And she says, when God sees us, he doesn't see the vileness of the sinner. He recognizes in them the likeness of his son in whom they believe. Okay, the next paragraph, she says that he desires his chosen heritage to value themselves. Oh, that word value. Notice, she says, Through the, when we value the sacrifice that was made for us, we see that we are of value in the Lord's sight because of what Jesus has done. And then the next paragraph, she says, God desires his chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price he has placed upon them. Okay, okay, we have to, there's just so much goodness and it's not going to stop. We are just turning this fire hydrant up and it's we got a ways to go here, but check this out. This is what she's saying, so you're clear. God wants you, right? God is not the reluctant, recalcitrant, old curmudgeon who only under significant persuasion and harassment says, okay, okay, fine then. No, he wants He desires us to value ourselves, and of course, by extension, those around us, by what standard? To value themselves according to the price that he has placed upon them. Well, what is that price? It's an infinite price. It's an infinite price. One of the things that I said to the young people in the week of prayer that I did just last week is that you are irreplaceable. There's only one of you. Not even God can make another you. He could make a wax-like figure that looked like you, talked like you, act like you. He could even make it out of flesh and, bone, flesh and bone and blood. But you are the product of the free decisions that you have made. God can't make free decisions for you. That's oxymoronic. It's like a square circle or a dry ocean or a wet desert. Right, like God cannot predetermine the free actions of other agents, no. How did you become you? Well, first of all, you became you because your mom and your dad came together. Well, that was already very unlikely, right? When you think about the total number of people that your parents could have connected with, they connected with one another, already your being here is against all odds. But let's take it another level. A a woman has many thousands of eggs in her, many thousands of eggs. And a man has, over the course of his life, many billions of reproductive cells, sperm. So so in order to get you, you, you can't just take any egg and any sperm. You have to get that woman and that man, and then you have to get that egg and that sperm, and that gets you, and then you have to be raised in that certain environment that you were raised in, that circumstance, that home, that situation, that college, that high school, that and ta-da, here you are. You're basically a miracle. The chances of you not being here are incomprehensibly larger than you being here. And yet here you are. You're basically a miracle. And not only that, not only are you irreplaceable in that sense, God then placed an infinite price tag on you and she then says, God wants you to value yourself in the way that he values you. Incredible. I mean, incredible. Incredible. You are so special, so wonderful. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing miracle. You're a miracle of creation. You're a miracle of statistic imp- statistical improbability. And you're a miracle of grace and of redemption. Say it out loud right now. I am a miracle. Go ahead and say it. Say it with me. I am a miracle. One more time for good measure. I am a miracle. A miracle. She says that he desires his chosen heritage to value themselves according to the price that he has placed on them. And then I love it. God wanted them, and then just a little bit later, she says he has use for them. Ah, oh, the, the the value of usefulness is inestimable. So important. I want to just spend a moment on that. Let me take a quick drink. Okay, yeah, a lot of people saying I am a miracle. Beautiful. So so human beings were made to make, right? We were created to create, right? God created Adam and Eve in his own image. God is a creator. He wanted them to be creative, including but not limited to procreation. God made you to make and he created you to create. He's got a use for you. He's got a value for you. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to learn. He wants you to create. He wants you to understand he wants you to fashion. He wants you to fabricate. He wants you to paint. He wants you to sing. He wants you to engineer. Whatever the thing is that you do, God, God wants you to do that. And here's the coolest thing. We are at our happiest when we're being productive. I think this is actually part of what's going on right now in sort of, I don't want to be unkind here and say millennials, but I think it's a part of kind of what's going on. The, the, Industrial Revolution and now the Technological Revolution and the Information Technological Revolution has created an ease and this like lots of discretionary income, lots of leisure time, and the need to be productive in order for survival is kind of like, eh, hmm. But we are happiest when we're employed. We're happiest when we're productive. We're happiest when we're useful, when we're doing stuff, creating stuff, right? Right? solving problems and helping people and ministry. Today, I had an extremely productive day and I feel great. As soon as DA with DA is done, I'm gonna go over in my living room, I'm gonna pull out my guitar, I'm gonna sit down, I'm gonna sing some songs, play some guitar, work on some finger picking, and I'm just gonna bask in the glory of a productive day. God made us that way. He made us to make, he created us to create. And I love that she says there, he has a use for them. God has a use for you. You're not just a little dust collecting ornament that's gonna sit on the shelf. No, God's got something for you to do. God's got a plan for you. God's got, a, God's got a thing that you can do that I can't do. And God's got a thing for me to do that you can't do. God's got a use for you. Okay, and then we come to the next paragraph, but to pray in Christ's name. Then the paragraph that begins, all true obedience. And this was another one. This is what I put up on my Instagram. This is another one of the all time paragraphs. Right, This one right here. Top 10, maybe top five. I think I've only written all time about eight times so far, seven or eight times in the whole book. And I actually had an idea what I'll do at the end of this is I'll go and um, assemble all of the quotations that to me were the all-time statements. And I think there'll be probably 15 of them or less. Um, This paragraph, man. In fact, I decided, I have... I have kind of part of this memorized, but I'm gonna memorize this. In fact, I think I might memorize all of the all-time statements. That'd be a good thing to do, right? Like, I'll make a list of them, at least the ones that I regarded as all-time. You can make your own list, of course. Um, I'll make a list of my all-time statements, and uh, this is gonna be in it, and I think I might even memorize them. I mean, this is too good. L- let's, let if, if you're in a place where you can read this out loud without embarrassment, like if you're sitting in a Starbucks, don't do it, but if you're in a place where you can read along with me, Let's read this together because this is too good. This is too good. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, this is incredible, that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses, The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God, as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ, through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to have that lodged in my mind word for word sentence for sentence, syllable for syllable. That needs to become a part of the, the landscape of uh, the furniture of my intellectual landscape. I need that hanging on the wall of my mind. It's too good. It's too good. Because what she's saying is, when we so identify with Jesus, he blends his will with our will. He refines, he sanctifies, he changes, he transforms, so that... When we're obeying, we are merely carrying out our own free desires, right? I love that line. She says that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. Brent, I want to tell you something. In the new heaven and the new earth, two things are going to be simultaneously true. You are going to be perfectly free and holy. This is what God wants us to be, voluntarily holy. That's the thing. So, so the trick, God made free people. The problem is, is that they use their freedom to be rebellious and insular and insubordinate and obdurate. But, but what God wants to do is for people to be totally free and then voluntarily holy. I can't wait. I mean, we're on that journey right now. We're on that journey now. And I, even now I think to myself, wow. The reason that I'm thinking this way, the reason that I'm feeling this way, the reason that I'm viewing this person or this situation this way is because Jesus has converted me. God has changed my heart. I'm a new person. Am I there yet? No, I'm not there. I'm still happy that when I pray and I make my stumbling, stammering stammering prayers, God sees my prayers through the perfection of Christ. But I can tell, I can tell God's converting me and I cannot wait till I get fully to the place where the things that I want to do, Jesus says to me, that's my will. That's my will. That's my will. And friends, I cannot wait until sin is totally hateful to me. There are some sins that are hateful to me right now. I look at them and I think that's, re- that's repulsive to me. That's disgusting to me. Why do people watch movies about that? I don't understand. That's not entertaining. It's perverse. It's disgusting. It's, uh, but not all sins are that way to me. The sins that I hate are hateful to me But the sins that I like are still attractive to me. And I wanna get to the place where I see all sin as hateful and as rebellious and ultimately as responsible for crucifying Jesus. Okay, so good. Um, Next paragraph, I love that line about we take hold of the strong for strength. I hope you underline that. That was so cool. We take hold of the strong for strength, right? Reminds me very much of uh, Jesus to Paul after Paul has been praying that his um, thorn in the flesh will be taken away. My strength is made perfect in weakness. We lay hold on the strong for strength. I really like that. Okay, I'm going to turn a couple pages here because I got a lot to go. Okay, now we get into the section where John 14, six to 8, 16 to 18, where he promises that another helper will come, right? Another helper, some translations say counselor, some say comforter, some say advisor, some say friend, Right? The, the, the Greek word here, parakletos, to, to walk beside, to be beside, to come alongside. Well, even the, the language, another comforter, alerts us to the fact that Jesus was the first comforter, and then he's going away, and in his absence, another parakletos, another comforter will come, okay? So this parakletos has to be a person. Jesus was a person. This has to be a person, and so the comforter that's going to come is none other than, drumroll please, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And so let's go to the paragraph that begins, the Holy Spirit is Christ's representative. There's a lot of great theology here. In fact, like the next several pages are just really great encouragement, exhortation, but also exegesis on the Holy Spirit, you know, this amazing section beginning in John 14, going all the way through to John 16 on the person of the Spirit, the work of the Spirit. She even gets into the identity of the Spirit. She goes deep on the nature of the Spirit right here, just briefly at least. Listen to this paragraph. The Holy Spirit is Christ's representative, but divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. Okay, that language is slightly awkward, but all that it means is that The Holy Spirit is the representative of Jesus. He's just like Jesus in the sense that he's a comforter, a paracletos, but he's not encumbered with humanity. In fact, she says that in the very next sentence. Cumbered with humanity, Christ could not be in every place personally. We talked about that just a moment ago, walking from town to town, village to village, place to place. Therefore, it was for their interest that he should go to the Father and send the Spirit to be his successor no one could have any advantage because of his location or his personal contact with Christ, such as the 11 had. By the Spirit, the Savior would be accessible to all. In this sense, he would be nearer to them, that is to say to all, than if he had not ascended on high. So notice a couple things here. First of all, she goes in on the nature of the Spirit here. The nature does not, excuse me, the nature of the Spirit. The Spirit does not have that physicality that Jesus possessed. possessed. He was, He's not incarnate, right? Jesus was incarnate, literally incarnate, in the flesh. And she uses this fascinating language here, divested of the personality of humanity, that is to say the encumbrance of humanity and independent thereof. And then she goes on to explain what she means by that somewhat opaque language. Uh, She says, well, it means that the Holy Spirit could be everywhere. He couldn't just be with the 11 in the upper room or in Jericho, or in Samaria, or in Phoenicia. He could be with everyone everywhere. And then she uses two very important words. She says the Holy Spirit was his representative and his successor. Okay, okay, okay. If I say, this is John, my representative. Okay, that has to be a person because I'm a person. David Asherick is a person, right? Surprise, surprise. So if I'm going to have a representative, that's going to be a person. Right, I can't, say, I can't say this water bottle is my representative. Here it is, my representative. You'd say, w- what? Yeah, 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 this is my representative. In-, in what sense can a water bottle be a representative? No, a representative has to have all of the qualities that I have, right? And if I say this water bottle is my successor, right, to my vast estate, the vast Asheric estate. I bequeath my vast estate to my successor, the water bottle. No, sorry, no. No, the only way you can have a representative or a successor is for that representative and successor to be the same kind of being, the same kind of agent that the original was. That is to say, a person. Jesus was a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Okay, again, the nature of that Personhood, we don't fully understand. I mean, I've never met a person that's not extended in space, right? I've never met a person that didn't take up, you know, sort of volume and, and, and was, had height and width and depth. And the Holy Spirit is that though. Someday I'll get to meet him. I mean, I have met him because he's convicted my hearts many, my heart many, many times. And he's spoken encouragement and comfort and wisdom to me many, many times. But I've never like shaken his hand but I have felt his presence. A really great illustration on that too, is that, and this might get a little philosophical for some of you, even your own personhood is not not hardwired to your physicality. Okay, now maybe I'm gonna regret going down this road, but I'll just briefly say, okay, here I am, a human being, and I have two hands, two arms, two legs. Let me just prove that. Here they are. Here's my legs. I even have feet. All right? Look at that. I got feet, two of them in fact. So so here I am. I probably look a lot like you in terms of my basic shape and structure. Yeah, I'm I'm a human being. But now just imagine I got in an accident, a terrible car accident, and I had to have my my left arm amputated, okay? So whatever percentage of my body that is, let's say that arm represents 15% of my body mass or 10% of my body mass. Okay, so here I am now. Well, I've met people that are amputees. You probably have as well at some point in your life. So would I be less of a person now? So would I be like 85% a person now? Right, or if you met an amputee that had lost not only say an arm, but let's say he had lost You know, his legs, like maybe you're familiar with the uh, preaching and teaching of a fellow, I think his name is Nick Vujicic, fascinating individual who has no arms and no legs. Okay, so his body mass is much less than my body mass, right? Like, like is he 50% of a person? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Nick Vujicic is 50%, no, he's not 50% of a person because what we're saying here is that what makes Nick Nick, what makes him so miraculously wonderful and special and what makes me special, even if I was an amputee, is not just my physicality, okay? So even here we get a little window, a little insight into the idea that the thing about us that is the most us is not primarily the thing that's extended in space. In fact, we often even talk like this We'll say things like, um, I followed my nose, right? Like, I don't know how I found that restaurant. I just, I followed my nose. Now think about that. Just like a little, we'll often say things like this, that we actually communicate in a way where we are in some sense separate from our body. We're in our body, and in some sense we are our body, but we understand that there is something immaterial about us, something transcendent, something not extended. I followed my nose, who's the I? I, I, and so it's not inconceivable by any means that God can be a person that's not bound by or tied to physicality, and certainly not human physicality or biology. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? He said, God is a spirit. God is a spirit. Remember when Jesus was... um When Jesus frightened the disciples and they thought he was a ghost, and then he said, no, no, touch me and see me, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. Jesus just said it there. A spirit is not extended in space by nature. The Bible actually refers to Jesus as a quickening spirit, right? It says the first man, Adam, this is in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man, Adam, was a living soul. The second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus, was a quickening spirit. So anyway, I've probably gone a little too deep here. But God is, by his nature, not bound to physicality in the same way that we are. But even with us, we sense that in some sense, we're not totally bound by our physicality. Because if we have people that don't have all the physical body parts that we have, we don't say they're less of a person. Because their personhood is more than their physical person, their physical body that's extended in space. And so I just absolutely love this idea, this paragraph. And Ellen White goes in a little deep here. She does. I'll read it again. The Holy Spirit is Christ's representative, but divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. Incredible. The next paragraph, she goes into a really great section where she talks about persecution. She says that Jesus looked at each of his disciples and saw one that would go to the scaffold, one would go to the cross, another to exile among the lonely rocks of the sea. And and that In the Holy Spirit, he would comfort these persecuted disciples with his own presence. Of course, because the Holy Spirit is, what two words? Representative and successor. And an inanimate, non-person object cannot be a representative and a successor. Sorry, doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. Now, did you love this line? In that same paragraph, toward about about two-thirds of the way down. Listen to this. When one is incarcerated in prison walls, Christ ravishes the heart with his love. I mean, tell me you didn't underline that. Tell me you didn't underline that, right? Christ ravishes the heart with his love. I just wrote, whoa, whoa. And look at these, just like, just bam, 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 just all over. Come on now. Christ ravishes the heart with his love. Man, I really like that. Because we often think of that phraseology, In terms of like romantic love, and of course, God is the creator of romantic love. Romantic love is a window into his divine agape love. Uh, One of the windows, not the only window, certainly, but I'm thankful for it, right? As a man who's 22 years happily married and deeply in love with his wife, I'm super happy about that romantic, that eros, that sensual love. It's a great and wonderful, beautiful thing. It's not the only dimension of love, but it's one dimension of love, and I love it. I'm very happy about it. And so this language I thought was really fascinating because we very often think of this language in romantic terms. That, that Christ ravishes the heart with his love. Cool. Very cool. And and I do think I do think we need to talk more about romance and even sex in Christian contexts. Um I've never been particularly shy about it, but like with our children and And in my preaching, I got no problem. I mean, God made sex. He created it. He invented it. It's absolutely awesome. I tell my sons all the time. I'll be like, boys, sex is amazing. You're going to absolutely love it. Like we are not one of those families to like keep that stuff to ourselves. No, we talk about that sex is a great gift from God. What a blessing. Now, it can be abused and it can be perverted and that has happened like all of God's good gifts, but you can drown someone in water. That doesn't mean that water's bad. Just because someone can be drowned in water doesn't mean you shouldn't drink water. And just because there are many and you know various perversions of sex doesn't mean that we shouldn't celebrate the good thing that God made, right? Romantic love, sexual love, sensual love, physical love. These are all awesome. They're great in their context. In their proper framework, they're amazing and they should be celebrated and they should be discussed and talked about and not as taboo subjects, but as a part of God's good world. Right? Okay. Next paragraph. At all times, in all places, in all sorrows, in all afflictions. Come on now. When the outlook seems dark and the future perplexing and we feel helpless and alone, the comforter. Bam. There's our word. The comforter will be sent in answer to the prayer of faith. No circumstance, no distance can separate us from the heavenly comforter. That's got Romans 8 all over it, right? That's got, I'm back to Romans 8, right? Because I got Romans 8 on the mind here. But I think you have to admit with me that that little section there feels very Romans 8-ish. I'll read it again. Listen, no circumstance, no distance can separate us from the heavenly comforter. Okay, try this on for size. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. It's Romans 8. Man, one of my favorite things about the writings of Ellen White is she's steeped in good Pauline theology, man. She's there. Okay, then Jesus, of course, says, um, she's in, still in John 15 and 16 now, uh, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, quoting Jesus, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own authority. Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he will take of mine and declare to you. He, 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 he. He's a person. He's the representative. He's the successor. He's the new comforter. Okay, so then... She talks about in that same paragraph there how it was difficult for the disciples to take in all of this fire hydrant of information that Jesus was giving them because they still had so many misunderstandings of Messiah, of his kingdom, of his work that had been just inculcated into them by the religious leaders of the day. And so everything Jesus would say, they would have to bounce it off of that sort of, you know, the the, the furniture of their life that was... Judaism, generational Judaism informed by the rabbis. So they're just like, uh, uh, they don't know where to put all of this because they're still, remember, just an hour or two before, they're still clinging to their, how does she say it? Their favorite. Oh, I can't find it right here. It would take me a second there. I can find it. Let me just quickly find it. She says the disciples were still clinging to their favorite. What's that word? It's going to drive me crazy. Some of you might remember this. Their favorite, no, that's not it. See, this is the way my mind works. When I can't remember something, it'll drive me crazy and I'll think about it over and over again. Their favorite idea. I can't believe I didn't remember that. The disciples clung to their favorite idea that Christ would assert his power and take his position on the throne of David. Okay, so, so that's all rabbinical. That's all Second Temple Judaism. And so when Jesus is giving all this information, they're like, they don't know where to put it. They don't know exactly how to make sense of many of the things that Jesus is saying. Comforter, so another comforter and the spirit of truth to lead us into all truth and by this shall all men know and my peace I leave with you and I'm preparing mansions and it just all sounds like a lot of really encouraging words that just kind of run together and they're just like, what? Now, all of this is going to make increasing sense after the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, as the Australians would say, the penny's going to drop. Ah, of course. But at this moment, John 13 to 17 sounds like a great, big, long, beautiful, encouraging, but ultimately very confusing sermon. And upon reflection, later, months later and years later, they'll go, Of course. Of course, right, because the Holy Spirit's gonna be there to remind, to bring, to, to remembrance whatsoever things I have told you, okay? So she talks there about the disciples' understanding. Um, she then talks about the reason that he's called the comforter. I thought this was very good. That's the paragraph that begins, the comforter is called the spirit of truth. I thought this was really cool. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth and thus becomes the comforter. I thought that was very interesting language. He becomes the comforter by dwelling in the heart and by orienting the human agent to truth. And then listen to this, thought this was great. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. That's true. There is comfort and peace in the truth, but it's hard to find comfort and peace in falsehood. And I think this is one of the reasons that people are so freaking out right now in this day and age, in this political climate in this moment in earth's history and in america's history because you have a time right now where you kind of choose your truth like you're a CNN guy or an MSNBC guy or a Fox News guy or an NPR guy like like or 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 gal like it, we're kind of at the place right now where you sort of choose who is telling the truth? And the people on one side regard the people on the other side as completely, you know, uh, you know, ignorant and imbeciles, and vice versa. And it's actually creating a kind of postmodern subjectivism, or at least it's it's fostering postmodern subjectivism, where it's like, well, there really is no truth, your truth, and we often even talk about that. Uh, we need to, li- you need to live your truth, and it's like, yeah, okay. I get the idea of some basic subjectivism, but but there is truth, objective truth in the world, like I am the way, the truth, the life, singular definite article. And the Christian church in many ways stands as a rebuke, and, and Jesus himself stands as a rebuke to this increasing and prevailing notion of total subjectivity, right? Total postmodernism, total what's sometimes called standpoint theory, like what is true for me is true for me because of who I am and where I am and how I am. And, and I'm not saying that there's not some truth to this. Of course, we all bring ourselves to bear on the truth. And a lot could be said about, you know, epistemic humility and epistemology and all, but, but, but here, never mind all that. Here's the point. The point is that the Holy Spirit is going to show us and tell us and reveal to us what's true. Not Fox News, not CNN. Not MSNBC. And I'm not even making a political statement there. I'm just saying these people can give their variations of the truth, their versions of the truth, their perspectives on the truth. Okay, fine. I I don't really have a dog in that race. All I'm saying is the Holy Spirit, you don't have to parse what the Holy Spirit says. You don't have to say, "Mm, well, who's saying it? And why are they saying it? And what financial incentives do they have to say it? And who are their backers? And who are they married to? And where do they have stocks invested? When the Holy Spirit tells you something and reveals to you the truth, that's the truth. Take it to the bank. When he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. And when we have that truth in our heart of hearts, it brings comfort. It brings comfort. It brings peace. Let me read it again. There is comfort and peace in the truth. But no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. And the only thing, the last thing I'm gonna say about this whole moment that we're living in right now, culturally and socially and politically is, don't fall into the camp where you think that this side has all the truth and this side has all falsehood or that this side has all the truth and this side has all the falsehood. Do not do that because where it will lead is for you to demonize other human beings, including your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not fall into that trap. It's a satanic deception. It's a satanic deception. If Jesus was able to navigate the complicated social and political environment in which he lived in, where there were the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and Rome itself and Herod, and he could navigate that without being perceived as a loyalist to any of them, we can try it too. We can try it too, okay? And so, yeah, hope you enjoyed all that. Um, okay, this is cool. Next paragraph begins, in describing to his disciples the office work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sought to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. That is so cool. I actually wrote cool in the margin. This is so cool. Jesus is like, I know what I'll do. I'll encourage them with what encourages me. I'll bring joy to them with what brings joy to me. And again, we've said this before, it's so cool that God is in this reciprocal relationship with us where he can be encouraged, where he can experience joy, where he not only loves, but can be loved and can appreciate being loved. And so I love that line there, to inspire them with the joy and hope that inspired his own heart. He rejoiced because of the abundant help that he had provided for his church. So cool, so cool. then, a little bit later in that paragraph, she says, this is fascinating, the Spirit was given as a regenerating agent, and without the sacrifice of Christ, it would have been of no avail. Without the Spirit, she says, the sacrifice of Christ would have been of no avail. She actually uses the word no avail in just a couple paragraphs again. Let me read it to you. The preaching of the Word will be of no avail without the continual presence and aid of the Holy Spirit. Fascinating that she uses that phrase twice, no avail. No avail. And then she's got this really great section here that I put a large box around where I just wrote third person, third person here. And uh, this is that same paragraph that begins in describing to his disciples. It's the last half of that paragraph. I'm gonna read all of that. It's too good to skip. Because here she goes into the divinity of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit not only can be a person, has to be a person if he's a representative and a successor, has to be a person, right? Can't be an inanimate object, but not only does it have to be a person, it can't be like, this is Joe. You know, <laughs> the infinite, eternal, incarnate God cannot say, here's my representative, Joe. Right, like Joe can be the representative of Jesus in a limited sense, in his neighborhood, in his community, in his job, of course, so can David Asher, so can you. But, but Joe and David cannot be the representative Christ, of Christ in the ultimate global sense, The only person that qualifies for that job has gotta be God himself, and that's the Holy Spirit. And here we're starting to get into the sort of essence of Trinitarian theology, because we've got God the Father, right? We know there's God the Father, and then we've got the Son, that is to say, the incarnate God, and then Jesus is now saying, I'm gonna send you another comforter. Well, okay, where, where do we put all of that? And the early church wrestled with this. Yeah, they knew that God was God, The Father was God. And they said, yeah, yeah, and Jesus is clearly God. And then they were like, well, what about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit clearly in Scripture, in the writings of Paul, in the book of Acts, and even in the words of Jesus, emerges as God himself. And thus sometimes people will pull this real gotcha moment on you. They'll say, the Bible never uses the word Trinity. Okay, fine. I'm not married to the word, but don't try to pretend that the Bible does not clearly communicate that God the Father is God, that Jesus is God and that the Holy Spirit is God. I mean, he's the representative and successor of Jesus. It's gotta be God. And I'm not here gonna go into all of the biblical texts that disclose that the Holy Spirit is God, but Ellen White does go into it here. Let's read that second half of that paragraph. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead. Okay, so she doesn't say Trinity. Fine, Godhead. Third person of the Godhead, well, who would the first person be? God the Father. Who would the second person be? God the Son. Who would the third person of the Godhead be? The Holy Spirit. I'm not married to the word Trinity. Say heavenly trio if you want. Say triune God if you want. Say third person of the Godhead if you want, right? I'm all about that. Through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead who would come with no modified energy, but in the fullness of divine power. How does he come in the fullness of divine power? He's the third person of the Godhead. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Preach. Through the Spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon the church. Now, again, the nature of the Spirit is a mystery. We've already talked about the non-embodiment of the Spirit, the non-corporeality of the Spirit. Corporeality, did I say that right? That the Spirit is not... Corporeal. Am I saying that right? That he's not extended in space. He's not incarnate. He's immaterial. Fine. We've already gone over that. Um, yeah. A lot of goodness there. Okay. How much more do we have to go? Wow. Oh, mercy. Oh, wow. I got to pick it up. Um, <laughs> okay. The sowing of the gospel seed. Uh, she talks about the promise, the promise, the promise. We cannot use the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to use us. Quotes Philippians chapter two, verse three. I'm racing along here. I'll I'll let you know where I'm at in just a second. Um, I love this line. She says, uh, this is in the paragraph that begins, in his discourse to the disciples, Jesus made no mournful allusion to his own suffering and death. His last legacy to them was a legacy of peace. Woo! A legacy of peace. Yes. Jesus' legacy to you is a legacy of peace. She then resumes the narrative, right? Then we're, that was a lot of theology there, a ton, right? Because the last bit of the narrative was, you know, show us the Father and and, uh, Philip and Thomas. And then it was like, and then now a little resumption of narrative here. She says, before leaving, this is how the paragraph begins. Before leaving the upper chamber, the Savior led his disciples in a song of praise this is narrative, his voice was heard not in strains of some mournful lament, but in the joyful notes of the Passover halal, and then quoting from Psalm 117, praise the Lord you his Gentiles and laud him all you his peoples, and so they go out in celebration. That would have been a difficult celebration because Jesus has just told them that he's leaving, and yet they sing songs of joy. Sometimes you have to sing songs of joy, not because you feel like singing songs of joy, but because you have to to remind yourself that there's cause for joy, right? There's cause for thanks, there's cause for gratitude, there's cause for joy. And sometimes we just have to go through the motions because our ears hear what our mouth says and what our heart feels. So sometimes you just have to do the work, the hard work, and an amazing thing hap- happens. When we speak joy and when we sing joy and when we think joy, that can then overcome the forebodings and anxiety and worry about whatever circumstance or situation in which you find yourself. Sometimes you just got to do that. You just got to do it. Um, she then says that they went out, and she says slowly they proceeded, each busy with his own thoughts. Jesus then turns, and that temporary joy is turned to consternation when he says to them in matthew twenty six thirty one Um, all of you will be made to stumble tonight because of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. She says, they heard these words with sorrow and amazement. What? Us? Depart from you? Never. And then, of course, Peter speaks up. You know, though all men leave you, though all men abandon you, though all men betray you, I will not. And then, of course, uh, we have this well-known section where, you know, Peter is rebuked kindly but firmly by Jesus and saying, actually, before the cock crows three times, you will have denied that you even know me. Peter can't conceive of this. Ooh, 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 ooh. This is too good. Go to the paragraph that begins, when Peter said, go there, listen to this. When Peter said he would follow his Lord to prison and to death, okay, he meant it, every word of it, but he did not know himself. Oh, friends, friends, friends. He did not know himself. He was sincere in what he said, but he didn't know his own heart, the heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So I love what Ellen White does here. She draws this incredible line where she says that he was sincere, but because he was in ignorance about his own person and the capacity of his own heart to deny his Lord, even though he was sincere, he was sincerely wrong. He didn't know himself. I thought that was just too good. God help me to know myself. Then she has a really. She continues that that whole paragraph's really great, where she goes into detail about Peter and about his mindset and about his personality, and it was it's really beautiful. Then 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 that, and obviously Jesus understood that Peter was offended when Jesus said that he would deny him, because she even says that Peter thought that Jesus' words to him were cruel. That's fascinating. That's a fascinating insight. She says, but Peter felt that he was distrusted and he thought it was cruel, right? He was already offended and he became more persistent in his self-confidence. Like he couldn't believe that Jesus would say that to him. Like, how can you say that to me? Don't you know how that hurts me? And Jesus is like, well, it might hurt you, but it's good for you and it's true because I know you better than you know you and you're going to deny me. And then she makes this great point. She says, If upon hearing that, Peter had thrown himself at the feet of Jesus and said, just like he had said when he was sinking beneath the waves on the Sea of Galilee, Lord, save me, I perish. She says, if he would have been self-distrustful and understood the situation in which he actually was, Jesus would have saved him from his denial. Isn't that incredible? Jesus would have saved him from his denial if he would have cast himself at the feet of Jesus and said, Lord, me, I will deny you. I oh, save me, God, I, 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 what you're saying is true, but I don't want it to be true. Lord, save me, else I perish. Jesus would have reached down and plucked him up and said, well, actually, since you've responded like that, it's not gonna happen now. But when he hardened himself and felt that Jesus' words were cruel and, and uh, he was offended, then he, he basically concretized in a similar way to what Judas did, but not to the extent that Judas did. He concretized himself in his rebellion. In his disobedience. Okay, then, 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 then. Listen to this. Next paragraph. The one that begins, Jesus looks with compassion on his disciples. He cannot save them from the trial, but he does not leave them comfortless. He assures them that, this, that he is to break the fetters of the tomb and that his love for them will not fail. Quoting Matthew twenty six thirty two: After I have been raised, he says, I will go before you to Galilee, and this is incredible. Friends, we've been going for an hour and 20 minutes, and I am still... Fully enthusiastic. Like, I'm not, I'm not slowing down here. This is incredible. Listen to this. Beef, I'm reading. Before the denial, before the denial, they have the assurance of forgiveness. Say it again for the people in the back. Say it again for the people in the back. Before the denial, They have the assurance of forgiveness. She said it. She said it. How does she say it? Well, because Jesus has said in Matthew chapter twenty-six, verse thirty-two, He has said, "All of you will be offended and stumble for Me because of after tonight, all of you." And then He says, "Yeah, but after I'm raised, we'll we'll meet up, and it's going to be all good." That is forgiveness in advance. That is advance forgiveness. (laughs) Read it again. Before the denial, they have the assurance of forgiveness. After his death and resurrection, they knew they were forgiven and that they were dear to the heart of Christ. I know that this gets some saints uncomfortable. Some people do not like this. They don't like the idea that Jesus died on the cross To forgive every sin that has ever been committed or even that could be committed because as we talked about yesterday, every sin that could be committed because a finite number of people committing a finite number of sins, any finite number multiplied by a finite number is a finite number. And remember, Jesus' sacrifice is an infinite sacrifice. And I know that some people don't like this, but the reason that people won't be saved is not because the capacity of the divine sacrifice was exhausted. It's because people don't give their sins to Jesus, right? Like the bucket, the, the bucket that could take, the infinite bucket that could take all of the sin that could conceivably be committed is just this gigantic bucket. And the total amount of human sin is like, is like one of these tiny little letters. It's like one of these tiny little letters here that you can just barely see like, that's the total amount of human sin, right? Like, the problem, God's capacity to forgive is not exhausted. Our willingness to be forgiven is exhausted. And so I know that some people get a little uncomfortable with it, with this when you say, oh, wait a minute, when Jesus died, that was an act of history that had to be An infinite sacrifice that could take on every possible human sin, past, present, and future, or else how could God know? How could God know? And, and so here it is. Here it is. Jesus says, Oh, by the way, you're going to sin. And then we're going to meet up and it's going to be fun. He's just let them know in advance. You're going to be forgiven. It's incredible, and I, and I know that some people hear that, and they're like, you can't tell people that, or they're gonna use it as an excuse to sin. Friends, come on now. Haven't we moved past that? Aren't we to the place now, back to that all-time statement, where, let me just read it to you again. Haven't This is where we wanna get, right? Not where we're like, check, 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 I'm just doing just enough to get in. Friends, true obedience comes from the heart. I'm gonna read it again. All true obedience comes from the heart. This is the all-time statement. It was heart work with Christ, and if we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will, that when obeying him, we shall be, be, but carrying out our own impulses, the will refined and sanctified will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God, as it is our privilege to know him, our life will be a life of continual obedience. Through an appreciation of the character of Christ through communion with God, sin will become hateful to us. Friends, I wanna become the person that when Jesus, if Jesus were to say to me, yeah, so you're gonna fail and you're gonna make a mistake. And then I say, well, Lord, save me, I perish. And in that moment, in that attitude, Jesus can say, as he could have said to Peter, well, actually, I think we can save you from that sin. But too often we get this idea like, oh, I think that was it, that was the, you know how you fill up a glass? If this has got a lid on it, but you know how you fill up a glass? I have a glass here. Let me show you what I mean. Maybe you've done this before where you like, you get a glass, right, and you just fill it all the way up. You just keep filling it up, 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 and then you get it right to the rim. And as a little boy, I used to do this. I even do it sometimes as an adult. And you just keep adding a little bit and you get to see, because of the surface tension of the water molecules, right, you get to see that meniscus over the top. And then another drop, yep, no problem, another drop, yep, no problem, another drop. And then finally you put a drop and when the surface tension breaks, It doesn't just have a drop that goes down, it all goes down. We sometimes have the idea that our sin is just like that. Like, oh, that was it, that was the one. That sin was the one that broke the meniscus and now, I'm sorry, you're lost. That's not how it works, friends. God's capacity to forgive is not limited. Our willingness to be forgiven is limited. Again, in the words of C.S. Lewis, are you asking God to forgive them? they will not be forgiven. You start seeing it that way and all of a sudden you're like, oh, so it's not like I have some set number of sins and if I commit that number of sins, then that was the one. No, the problem with sin is not that it exhausts God's capacity to forgive. The problem with sin is that it exhausts your capacity to want to be forgiven. That's the problem. That's what's going on. Sin doesn't change God. Changes you. Come on now. Okay. Um, Then the vine thing. Oh, man, we're just so deep. Okay. So what was really fascinating about the vine thing here, I am the true vine, this is all the John 15 stuff, is I literally preached on this today. I preached on grafting today. I preached on the scion today. So if you know anything about grafting, you have the rootstock and you cut it off and then you drive a wedge in and then you put what's called the scion, which is the little graft into the rootstock of the vine or the tree. And as I was preaching on this today, um... The cameraman, Jim Hunigard, a good friend of mine, was saying, yeah, yeah, I know all about that. We used to graft trees. And he, he grew up in California. And he was telling me about the grafting they would do from the, the English walnut into the American walnut and the, the, the native grapevines into the, um, vines that they bring from Europe and Spain and other places, grafting. And she uses the idea here of grafting. We're grafted into Christ in that four part series that I, Preach the first two parts of today is the same series I did for my son's academy last week. It's good. Simple. Very, very simple. We do four parts. The soil, the roots, the tree, the fruit. The soil, the roots, the tree, the fruit. And today I did the soil and the roots. And tomorrow I'll do the tree and the fruits. And When that series is up on Storyline, Storyline's YouTube channel, I'll let you know. I'll be sure to put it up on my Instagram account. Good. Simple. I didn't make it all deep and complicated. I just... I deliver it exactly as I delivered it to the teenager. So it's geared for people 14 to 18. And Jim was sitting there and he's like, man, this is good stuff. I want my teenagers to hear this. This is good. This is simple. But anyway, I was talking about the scion, which is the little thing that's grafted into the root. And Jesus in both the Old and the New Testaments is referred to as the root. Did you know that? The Old Testament and the New Testament refers to Jesus as the root. So when we are grafted in to the root, grafted in to the vine, well, then we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. So anyway, so much goodness there, so much beauty there. Then Jesus does the whole abide in me and I in you. I have a sermon that I preached years and years ago called Abide, Abide. And I had this great line from that sermon that basically goes like this. You cannot continue to abide where you do not presently reside. Jesus says to his disciples, anticipating that they're going to abandon him, and in the case of Peter, deny him with cursing and swearing, Jesus says, remain there, abide there. But let me say it again, more slowly this time. Friends, listen to this. This is a life-changing truth. Go find that old sermon. I preached it a decade ago, but it's a good sermon. Based on John 15, You cannot continue to abide where you do not presently reside. Another way to say that is you can't stay where you aren't. You can't stay where you aren't. Well, where are they? Where are they? What has Jesus just said to them like two hours before? You are clean. You're clean. Now stay there. Now stay there. And friends, this is so incredible because what it alerts us to is that Jesus is not over-worried about the fact that they're going to deny him, they're going to flee from him because he knows they're going to come around. It's not this in and out, saved, unsaved, yo-yo type thing. Jesus says to them that they're clean in advance of knowing that they will all be made to stumble for him and they will all flee. Friends, that's... Cleanliness in advance. That's forgiveness in advance. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. As long as you keep coming back to Jesus, you're gonna be okay. You just gotta keep coming back to Jesus. You cannot exhaust God's capacity to forgive, but what you can do is exhaust your own willingness to be forgiven, okay? So when Jesus says, remain in me, this is in the context of him having already said, you are all clean. You're clean. He's already washed their feet. You are all clean. Now, not all of them, because Judas wasn't clean. Why? Because God wouldn't forgive? Because God wouldn't wash? Because, no, because he left. Judas left. Ha, ha. That's a decision that Judas made. And in making that decision, he further concretized himself in his own rebellion. But if you stay with Jesus, you're going to be okay. So you cannot continue to abide where you do not presently reside. You can't stay where you aren't. And they were clean. And they were with Jesus. Even when Jesus knew that there would be a temporary failure, he knew they'd come back around. Oh, okay, is that enough? I mean, is that enough? I mean, I can just go on and on and on and on. I mean, we've been going for an hour and a half. Um, what else do we got here? Man, so much. I'm, I'm skipping over stuff. It's just too good, it's too long. It's too awesome. Oh, this was too good. Go to the paragraph that says, my father is the vine dresser. This is on page 801. 801, 801-677 of the original and go down about halfway into that paragraph. This is so hot. This is another great turn of phrase. This is good. A profession of religion places men in church, but the character and conduct show whether they are in connection with Christ. Bam. Oh, that's a that's a mic drop. She's like, when you profess Jesus, that puts your body in church, but that doesn't mean you're connected to Christ, right? Being connected to Christ is a whole other thing. I just thought that was so good. A profession of religion places men and women in church. <laughs> it's one thing to get your body into church. It's a whole other thing to get your heart into Christ, to get your spirit into into Christ and your character and your conduct into connection with him. By the way, she uses that connection, connection, communion, continual communion, constant, continually, constantly, just, she uses that over and over again. Then she quotes the son of righteousness. We've already been talking about the son of righteousness, S-U-N, she quotes it twice in this chapter, that's straight out of Malachi. I think it's Malachi, right? Okay, okay, I got a lot, I got a lot here, I got a lot here. Um, Here's a great promise when men are bound together. Okay, jump down, well down. This is page 802 uh, in Types and Symbols 678. The paragraph that begins, this love is the evidence. This love is the evidence. Look at this. This love is the evidence of their discipleship. By this, will all know that you are my disciples, said Jesus, if you have love for one another. Now watch this. When men and women are bound together, not by force, Or by self-interest, but by love, they show the working of an influence that is above every human influence. Okay, the Christian church was absolutely revolutionary because it bound people together by something more than language, culture, geography, religion. Right, It bound them together by their connection to Jesus such that, Those national barriers and those geographical boundaries ceased to really have any significance. This is why Paul could travel here, there, and everywhere in the greater Mediterranean world and find what? His brothers and sisters, his fellow countrymen in Christ, in the new heaven and the new earth. And so Christianity was a radical, tectonic innovation that people could be identified not by language primarily, not by geography primarily, not by the color of their skin primarily, but by their connection to the creator God and to his son Jesus. This is so great. She says when people are bound together in the Christian faith, not by force, not by what's the other thing she says, not by self-interest, but by love, she's like that's proof positive that God is moving. And the Christian church was a radical innovative idea that people could be bound by something even more significant and stable and solid than language, culture, geography, history. When I said the word H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, my phone thought I was saying something else because that sounds like another thing. Um, okay, okay, one more quickly, uh, quick thing here. Jump down to the paragraph that says, as the world's redeemer... As the world's redeemer, Christ was constantly confronted with apparent failure. Oh, I thought that was amazing. As the world's redeemer, he was continually, it looked like failure, 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 failure. Now watch this. Jump over several paragraphs to page 805. Paragraph that begins uh, 680 in the original. Paragraph that begins, Christ rejoiced that he could not do more for his followers. And go to the last Sentence of that. He knew that the life of his trusting disciples would be like his, a series of uninterrupted victories not seen to be such here, but recognized as such in the hereafter. This is so cool when he put these two ideas together. She says that when he was on earth, it looked like, let me read it to you again, Christ was constantly confronted with apparent failure. But then she says, Jesus saw that the life and ministry of the disciples would actually be a series of uninterrupted victories that didn't look like victories in the here and now, but with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of omniscience, which God, of course, possesses, it, what looked like failures were victory, victory, victory. And of course, what's exhibit A? Exhibit A is the cross. The cross looks like a grand failure. One great, big, gigantic letdown. A capital F failure, like a crucified Messiah. This is why Paul says when we travel from town to town and village to village throughout the Mediterranean world and we announce a crucified Messiah, people think we're crazy. The Jews say, well, that's a scandal. And the Greeks say, well, that's foolishness. So so things that look like total failures become amazing victories through the lens of God and through the perspective of eternal hindsight. Because how do you place a value on even one person that's saved for eternity. I mean, what's the value on that? That's an infinite value, right? So from God's infinite perspective, even one person saved, you hold an evangelistic meeting, you give Bible studies, you pour yourself out and you get a thousand no's and you get one yes and that one yes matures into a soul saved. Yeah, that's that's an uninterrupted, a, a series of uninterrupted victories. Because how do you calculate that? How do you calculate the value of a person saved for eternity? That is of eternal value, and it, since the life of God was the price paid for that salvation, it's a, it's infinitely valuable, and it's incalculable. This is a little bit. This is right on the borders of Pascal's wager. Right that that there's no illogic in making a um a a, a wager. The wager of faith, if we have the opportunity, and Pascal is a mathematician, appreciated this, if we have the opportunity to gain an infinite prize or an eternal prize, he says any finite risk is worth it. If there's the prospect of an infinite, an eternal, it's fascinating. And so what looks like failure in the here and now, moving through life in real time, she's like, yeah, Jesus saw, that the disciples, it would look like failure, 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 failure. I mean, do you, do you think that the, that Paul had any idea that that literally hundreds of millions of people would become followers? Hundreds of millions of people would become followers and would read his letters that he wrote to those little house churches in Galatia and in Corinth and in Rome. I mean, Paul certainly had prophetic insight and vision, and I'm sure God showed him a lot of things, but I don't think even Paul understood the scope. There's gonna literally be hundreds of millions of people saved because Paul wrote, Paul preached, Paul traveled. Now, of course, all of that traces back to Jesus. None of it's because of Paul, but what looked like failures were grand, incomprehensible successes, again, with the benefit of hindsight. I thought that was too good to pass up. Um, Yeah, so she talks about how the prince of this world is cast down, and though it's gonna look like the church failed, she's like, no, the church does not fail, though I'm reading now in that same paragraph, or the next paragraph, though apparent impossibilities obstruct their way by his grace, they are to go forward. Instead of deploring difficulties, they are called to surmount them. They are to despair of nothing and hope for everything. All right, now I got the chills Now I got the chills. Go all the way down to the last paragraph because she does a section there on on John 17, the beautiful prayer, Father, that they might be one as we are one. Beautiful, but go to the last paragraph. Last paragraph, we made it. There we go. Now she's commenting on the prayer of John 17, right? Jesus' incredible prayer. His prayer for himself, his prayer for his disciples, and then his prayer for all of the believers that would come in the wake of the disciples' ministry. Whoo! quick breather, last paragraph. Thus, in the language of one who has divine authority, Christ gives his elect church into the Father's arms. As a consecrated high priest, he intercedes for his people. As a faithful shepherd, he gathers his flock under the shadow of the Almighty in the, in the strong and sure refuge. For him, there waits the last battle with Satan and he goes forth to meet it. Chills, chills. So friends, that was a great big chapter. What was your word for that chapter? There's literally a dozen words that would be perfect for this chapter, but I wanna know what your word was and then I'll show you mine. Whew, yeah, she nailed it. Agree, absolutely agree. Glorify, promise, intercedes, says Hannah. What are your words? Oh, value, Kendra, great word. That was one that I hadn't even thought of, but it fits so well. Abide, yes. Continually, yes. Abide, yes. Stay, very good, like remain. Legacy, love it, Cassandra. Um, Comforter, says Chris, that was my word as well. Comforter was my word as well. Infinite, intercession, power, preparing. Overwhelming, value. Man, I really like value. Kendra and Kay, good for you, good for you. Abide, no words. (laughs) United, Bernice, I love it. Vine, comforter. Johnny's was reward. Ooh, I'd have to think about that, reward. Reward, I like it. Spirit, consent, dependent, encouragement. Ooh, ooh, I like that, I like that. Before, oh, that's good. I like the word before, very good. Root, matchless, consent, connected, victory. Yeah, Monica, same, same. Uh, comforter, comforter. And, and a few more here, anchored, gift. Okay, so pausing there for a second. The reason I went with comforter is that Jesus here is clearly giving all of this, John 13, John 14, John 15, 16, and 17, to comfort his disciples, and then he promises further comfort in the arrival of his successor and representative, The Holy Spirit. Michelle says in. Jamie says united, predestined, graft. Ooh, Reiner, I'll take it. I'll take it. Reiner, you're gonna absolutely, as as a gardener and as someone who loves plants and and, uh, spending time in the out of doors, working with your hands, you're gonna love this sermon series. The soil, the roots, the fruit, the trees and the fruits. You're gonna love it. When it's out, I'll let you know about it. Um, Oh, very good. Johnny says, when you are troubled, think of the reward. Yeah, no, that's good. So my word was comforter because Jesus is comforting the disciples and then he promises the arrival of the comforter. I actually didn't even, you wanna see something funny and a little embarrassing? Here it is. There's my point, my person, my prayer, and my practice. <laughs> I was so flat out today. I spent time reading and preparing and underlining, but let's just. I'll just come up with it right now. What was the... Point of this chapter. Well, the point of this chapter is for Jesus to encourage and to inspire and to warn and uh, yet yeah, to prepare his disciples for what was coming, and not just his disciples but us to prepare us for what was coming. Um, so that's the point of this chapter. Okay, what do we learn about the person? Um, I think we learn here that I think we learn a lot of things, but I think we learn as my word suggests, that Jesus is the comforter. He longs to comfort, to console, to assist, to help. That word parakletos is translated in so many different ways. Helper, friend, advocate, comforter. Um, Yeah, that God longs to help us, to console us, to comfort us, to be near to us. God places an infinite value. Ooh, I'm so glad that Kendra and Kay noted that word. And I'm seeing a lot of great stuff in there. Jesus is a gardener. Yeah, good, agree, love it. Jesus is a comforter and he sends the Holy Spirit as a comforter, which means that God is a comforter. Um, how do we pray this chapter? Whoa, how do we pray it? I mean, there's literally 5,364 prayers that we can pray in this chapter. But but I think for me, man, I wanna pray that John 15 prayer that Lord, help me to stay in the vine. Help me to stay connected. Help me to remain, to abide in the vine. Keep me there. Keep me. Maybe that's the prayer. I think that's the prayer. Keep me. Keep me there. And uh, with Jesus' help, we can stay right there. If Peter would have cried out and said, no, Lord, I don't want to deny you. Keep me. He would have been saved from his denial. That story would have been told differently. And then how do we practice this chapter? Whoa, how do we practice this? Oh, I know how we practice this chapter. We pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We pray for the Holy Spirit to infill us so that our minds can be turned, as she says there in that opening bit, from earthly exile to a heavenly home. That's how we pray this chapter. We say every single day, Father, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your word. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that what you have done in Jesus, you can by your Spirit do in and through me, and that just as he was the capital L light, I can be a little L light shining in my little world, in my sphere of influence, in my circumstance, in my situation. May Jesus shine through me. That's not going to happen through me. David's a sinner in need of a Savior. David's drowning in in the world and in its ways. And I say, Lord, save me, I perish. And he lifts me up and fills me with his spirit. And then it's God's light shining in and through and out of me that will be a blessing to my neighbors and friends and family members. And so that's it. That's how we practice it. Say, Jesus, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And on that note, let's pray right now for that very thing. Father in heaven, fill us with your spirit. What a chapter this has been. And Father, it's been a marathon. But man, so much goodness here. I pray for my voice, Father. It does feel a little weak. Uh, I got two sermons to give tomorrow, and so I just pray that you'll uh, help me to get a good night's rest. And uh, Father, just may these great truths of John 13 through 17, may they just fill our minds. May we be reminded of those great passages in all of these chapters, right? That, That you are the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said, and that he is the true vine. And that's John 15. And that The spirit of truth will lead us into all truth, John 16 and then John 17, that we might be one with one another just as the Father and the Son are one. Father, by the Spirit, may we become one with you. Uh, Fill us with your Spirit. Help us to love the way that Jesus loved, to minister the way he ministered, to serve the way he served, and uh, to speak the way he spoke, to think the way he thought. Father, we wanna have that all-time paragraph that we read there be f- fulfilled in our own experience, that when that we are so filled with the Spirit, we are so free in Christ that when we're carrying out our own impulses, we are actually living a life of continual obedience because we're filled with the Spirit. And Father, we don't believe for a moment that it's our actions, even our spirit-filled actions, that are gonna recommend us to you. It's Christ that recommends us to you. It's his perfection that recommends us to you, and we receive that right now. But Father, in the light of that great truth of the gospel, Fill us with your spirit and may we be everything that we can be in Christ to the world around us is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen.